Today's Father's Day, and my brother David is a pastor up in Toledo, and he told me that sometime this last year, for a period of weeks, he talked about fatherhood every Sunday. And um, I was kind of surprised he did that, and it was talks. Um, And this morning, I really want to uh, encourage those of you who are dads to not abdicate your responsibility and authority, but to go ahead and bite the bullet and admit who you are and what God's made you, despite your inadequacy, despite the fact that you think it was a mistake that you were made a male instead of a female, um, despite the many sins that you have, uh, I want to encourage you to take your, and I just despise speaking like this, but I have to do it, to take your brokenness to God. Now, why do I despise talking like that? Because postmodern men are really into talking about their brokenness, and I just despise it. And I, I despise it because, you know, grow up. He made you a man. Stop blubbering. You're a man. Be a man, <laughs> you know? And it's not because I'm strong and I can't understand brokenness. That's what everybody thinks. So unless you go around parading your brokenness, everybody thinks you must not be broken. And you must be a pompous you-know-what. You know, you must be a blowhard. You must be cocky. You must be proud. But the fact is, it's always been true in history that the man who fights is the most humble We are in a twisted time where people think that the man who fights is the most proud. And the the truth is, it's the very opposite. It's the man who fights who is most humble. Why? Because fighting is a nasty business. People hate you when you fight. You know, everybody thinks that the man that fights, fights because God made him hostile and... and, uh, Oh, I don't know. Just God filled him with sin, and that's why he fights. And there are some men who fight because they're filled with sin. But if you watch what they fight over, they always fight about their own perquisites. Everything they fight about is about their beer, their television, their taxes. (laughs) In other words, self-interest is everywhere. When a man fights because of his sin, everything is about his convenience, his selfishness, and his pride. But if you see a man who fights for the protection of the souls under his care, you're not dealing with somebody who is fighting because he's a sinner. You're dealing with someone who's trying to repent of his sin of abdication and is trying to do what is right. And that man is humble. And the man who talks on and on and on about how if we were all really Christian, then we wouldn't need leadership and authority. And, and when we fully evolve, then we'll finally get to the point where there won't have to be any authority. And you know, in heaven there will be no authority. And you know, between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, there's no authority. When you hear that kind of thing, and they never are that blunt about it because they're passive-aggressive, so they hide what they're saying. When you hear that thing, that's a proud man. Because that's a man that sits in judgment on the Trinity. He sits in judgment on the authority of the Father over the authority of the Son. Do you understand that? He sits in judgment on the Trinity where there is economic subordination. 
And everywhere the fatherhood of God and its authority works out over life, like, for instance, a king over his nation, a father over his children, a principal over his school, everywhere that authority works out, that man will sit in judgment over that authority too. Because he started by judging the authority of God. That man is proud. That man is proud. That man is fully enslaved to his own insecurities and to his own selfishness. That is a man who does not want to bear the responsibility of the sanctification of his wife, as Christ bears the responsibility of the sanctification of his bride, the church. That man does not want to bear the responsibility of saying no to his son. Because he wants a friend instead of a son. And so when men attack authority in marriage, when they attack authority of parents over children, when they attack the authority of teachers over classrooms, when they attack the authority of the IRS over our pocketbook, when they attack the authority of President Obama over our nation, when they attack the authority of pastors and elders and deacons and Titus II women in churches over the people of the church, what you're seeing is not hum- humility. You're seeing pride. Because humble men submit to authority. Do you know that we do a lot of premarital counseling in this church? A lot. A lot of postmarital counseling, too. <laughs> and in premarital counseling, we have had occasion many times to tell men who will not submit to authority, that they are not prepared to be a husband. Because you know what kind of a husband a man who's a rebel makes? He makes a very nasty husband. (laughs) Because, you know, here's the truth. The man who won't submit to authority is always oppressive in his exercise of authority. (laughs) Little secret I've learned after many years of watching myself. But when a man learns to submit to authority, then the exercise of authority is benevolent. Because he knows his frame that he is made of dust. All right? So, fatherhood. We live in a day when everybody hates authority. Everybody hates authority. It's in the American political psyche to be a rebel. What did they call the Southerners? Johnny Rebels. (laughs) George still is one, right? (laughs) South Carolina. And Americans had a revolution. I saw a billboard coming down from India yesterday, and it said, it was uh, near Mooresville, and it said, uh, it said, uh, since July 4th, 1776, we have had freedom. And thank you to all of you servicemen who continue to protect it or something like that. And so it's deep in the psyche of America to rebel against authority. And I don't want to get into a discussion of whether or not I think the Revolutionary War was proper. But one thing I do want you to understand is on the 4th of July, 
you are celebrating the principle of rebelling against the civil magistrate for the principle of no taxation without representation. Just so it's clear what you're celebrating on the 4th of July as a submissive Christian. (laughs) And I will admit that lots of Presbyterian pastors led the revolution. I have a very ambivalent relationship towards the American Revolution. Um, I can't quite figure out which side I'd fight on, just like the Civil War. Uh, I have some inclinations to the South and some to the North, and because I'm a Northerner, I think I would have fought with the North. But my family lived in Gettysburg. That's where all my ancestors are buried, and I always wonder which side I would have been on. It's kind of an accident of where you were born and where you lived in many ways. So think about the Revolutionary War. Think about Protestantism versus Catholicism. Think about the North versus the South and states' rights and secession. Think about uh, our cultural icons, you know, Bruce Willis and John Wayne and Clint Eastwood and, you know, these dudes who are all independent men, right? And think about the morality of all Westerners, that the authority of the town can't be trusted and some dude has to come in from outside and clean up the town. And that's who you and I are. And so when I tell you that we're rebellious to the core, and that's in our political ethos, trust me, it's true. And America's political ethos is now the world's, right? And so today... When you become a husband, you stand in front of the people of God with them as witnesses and God as witness. And you take your vows. You plight your truth. You have taken on an office of authority. You are a father and a husband. Now, why would I say a father? Well, not because your bride is pregnant in the marriage, but rather because every position of a of authority is fatherhood. If you read Thomas Watson on the Ten Commandments, it comes to the Fifth Commandment, which is Nicholas. Paul knew it. Come on, Nicholas. What's the Fifth Commandment? It's the First Commandment with a promise. The Fifth Commandment. I've scared you, right? Tell me you're scared and we'll 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 go to somebody else. He's scared. All right, we'll go to somebody else. So does anybody who's slightly... Oh, yeah. So that... Yeah, so that you have a long life. Is that good enough? That's good enough. Good job. Excellent. Honor your father and mother. And if you read Thomas Watson on Honor Your Father and Mother, what you'll find him saying is that every king is a father to his nation. Now, when I first read that, my brain exploded because I realized that fatherhood is at the core of the world. It's not just something that happens to somebody when his wife gets pregnant, but it's at the core of the world. That every king is a father to his nation, every president is a father, every governor is a father, every teacher is a father. That includes women. Every policeman is a father. All right? Every uh, violin teacher that you pay every week to meet with you is a father. That fatherhood is authority. 
And so when the Bible tells us, honor your father and mother, it's not simply telling you that if you still are young and you're still in a home, that you should honor your father and mother. It's telling you that when your parents get old, then you should honor them. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know it because the only time Jesus exegeted the fifth commandment, his application was to older parents. It's the only time he brought it up. He said, how dare you declare Corbin money that you should give to your parents in their old age to care for them. You remember Jesus saying that. And so we're dealing with adult children not caring for their parents, adult children not honoring their father and mother. And so when we look at the fifth commandment, we're not just talking about children in a home, we're talking about children whose parents are now aging, they're in their dotage. Then we're talking about children who are grown-ups now and who are speeding on 37 and who get pulled over by a father who gives them a ticket. And that father may be a woman. She is a father. Because fatherhood and authority are like this. What is God? God is the ultimate authority. All authority flows from God. God is the what? Ephesians 3. The pater from whom all patria and heaven and earth gets its name. Now, you don't know Greek, but you heard it. Pater, patria. He is the father from whom all fatherhood gets its name. So God is the father. And then out of the father flows authority and fatherhood. And he delegates to the king the authority of the king. He delegates to President Obama his authority. He delegates to the woman police officer her authority. Delegates to a teacher. Delegates to a mother. Did you know, for instance, that a wife has authority over her husband? And you go, well, now wait a second. No, 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 no. The authority flows from the husband to the wife because Christ is the head of the church and because Adam was created first and because it was Eve that was deceived and not Adam. And you, you say all those things because you recognize the authority of Scripture and you've learned what Scripture has to say about Christian marriage. And so those things just pop right out of your mouth, right? No, I don't think so. <laughs> Come on, guys. So you know that the authority flows by God's creation order from Adam to Eve, from the husband to the wife. And I just said that a wife has authority delegated to her by God over her husband. And you go, no. And I go, yeah, where? Amanda? Huh? Dinner table? Well, yeah, that's true. That's true. Today, when we have a celebration, I think, of, of fatherhood at our house, my wife will tell us when to come to the table, and that is authority. There are many, many ways that the wife has authority over her husband. Scripture actually names one. And what is it? The body, his body. She has authority over his body. We all know that that's a synecdoche. And what a synecdoche is, is where a little thing stands for a bigger thing or a bigger thing stands for a little thing. It can go either way. And so when it says over his body, what it means is that the pastor's wives in this church have the authority to say no to one woman serving as our secretary and yes to another one. Did you know that? 
the pastors of the church have delegated to their wives the task of vetting who serves in the office as the secretary. Did you know that my wife exercises authority over me and how I meet with women in my office? Because why? Because the Bible says that she has authority over my body. Did you know that there are many marriages which are completely foolish because the wife doesn't exercise authority over her husband's body? (laughs) And so this authority is often held by women. It's often held by young. For instance, there are many homes in our church that have more than one child. And did you know that one of the secrets of having more than one child is that the authority of the father, which is delegated to the authority of the mother, is also delegated to the authority of the oldest sibling. And so one of the reasons why it's not as difficult as you might think to have a lot of children is that the older siblings take on the responsibility of disciplining the younger siblings. And that's why it's hard to raise the final child when the other siblings are out of the home. Because all of a sudden, you have to ramp up right at the time when your body is saying, ramp down. Authority. Even in the children, there is an authority that goes from the older to the younger. And so everywhere you look, there's authority. It's the authority in Titus 2 of the older women. It commands older women teach the younger women. And then what is one of the things it tells them to teach them? It tells them to teach the younger women to be submissive to their husbands. There you have it. It's authority again. And the world is filled with people who want to say that if we're fully evolved, if you ever, you know how um, Johnson, Samuel Johnson said, the louder he talked of his honor, the faster I counted my spoons. If anybody ever talks to you about evolved, you know, progressed, being progressive or evolved, you should count your spoons. It's likely you're about to have somebody steal from you. In other words, those words are used today to cover up an awful lot that's evil. People today think that if we are really sanctified, really holy, really evolved, really Christian, that there won't be any need for authority. And the only reason for authority in a marriage is when you have a tie, and the tie needs to be broken. All right? Is that what God says? Have you ever seen anywhere in Scripture where God says that the only purpose of the husband's authority in marriage is when there's a tie vote and he has to break the tie? Can you imagine having such an awful view of the dignity and glory of authority that the only time it ever had to be exercised was when the husband wasn't enough of a servant leader and didn't give in to his wife early enough? And so there was a tie vote because the husband wasn't a servant leader because if he was a servant leader, there would never be a tie vote. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so at that point, if he really isn't evolved, isn't Christian, isn't holy, and if he is going to not give in to his wife and her preferences, then, all right, he has to make the decision. Tie vote, he makes the decision. You imagine that being a statement of the biblical doctrine of authority. We live in a, in a rebellious age where if you were really holy, you would never exercise authority because there wouldn't be any need because you'd be a servant leader and you'd give in to your wife every single time. 
Because she is, after all, always right. Because she is, after all, a woman. And no man has ever gotten points by saying no to a woman. (laughs) The children are watching. What child has ever been happy when his father tells his mother no? Every child thinks that his father is a monster when he does that. (laughs) Right? Julia, am I right? Thank you. And she is an authority. And do you know why she's an authority? Because she's probably the oldest person in here, and the Bible says that those who are old have authority and that the young are to honor them. And if I didn't have any other evidence, no other exhibits, to marshal before you in making my case, I'd rest with that one. We despise the elderly in our culture. There is absolutely no authority that is attributed to those with white hair today. (laughs) Charlie, am I right? Yeah. I mean, you're an idiot. You don't know how to use an iPhone. (laughs) Right? And that's all we need to know about Charlie. He's old and in the way, so... It's called euthanasia, right? We have a nephew who's going to be here for the conference. He's coming down from Galena, and uh, he's a wonderful guy. But when he was a tiny little boy, his parents were not fully evolved yet. And so they were talking about how they didn't want to get old. You know, you remember, I hope I die before I get old. Remember the rock and roll song? Uh, And so he listened to his mom and dad talking about how much they didn't want to live to be old and to be a burden on their children. Isn't that disgusting? What do you think the children were on those parents? (laughs) Diapers? Anyone? And so he was listening, and he was... um, Mary Lee? She isn't here. I don't remember how old he was. I want to say that he was probably three. You think it was a little older? It was very young. And he had been listening, and he looked at them, and he said, Mommy, Daddy, you don't need to worry about getting old. When you get old, I'll take care of you. And they were so pleased. It was such a sweet thing. You could write it in a Hallmark card. And so they looked at him and they said, really, Preston, so how are you going to take care of us when we get old? And he went, (laughs) and that is the United States of America today. You remember what Governor Lamb said? The governor of Colorado? Do you remember when he said that? Any of you remember that? Governor Lamb said the old people need to learn to kick off earlier. You remember that. Do you, do you remember it? Boy, I'm old. And so we look at what's happening today. How many people die because a steadily increasing dosage of morphine? And it's not to take care of pain. It's to suppress the vital functions. That's what it is. We do not respect the elderly. 
we do not honor our father and mother as Jesus commanded us to. And we call it physician-assisted suicide, and we call it uh, pain management. We do not respect the authority of Julia. How many of you have visited her in her home? How many? It doesn't surprise me with you, Jim. You respect authority. Oh, so it's Annie? Okay, yeah. You guys need to visit her. So the IRS is wrong. Your husband is wrong. Barack Obama, the president, is wrong. Management is wrong if you're union. The pastor's wrong. The elders are wrong. The deacons are wrong. The tightest two women, the older women of the church, are wrong. The Bible is wrong, and God is wrong. But we haven't yet gotten to the point where the people in the church are willing to be honest. And so it's only people outside of the church, like Christopher Hitchens, that say God is not great. But I listen to you, and I hear you, and I read what you write on your blogs and Facebook. And it's clear that you think God is wrong because you don't honor his word. His word is clear. And we have all these ways of getting around his word. So now think about this. If your husband is wrong and your father is wrong and your teacher is wrong and the police are wrong and the IRS is wrong, and the Bible's wrong and God's wrong, and you take your vows in the presence of these witnesses in God to be a faithful husband to this woman, all right? You take your vows. The minute you take your vows, you become what? A father. A husband. You have authority. You have taken on the office of husband. All right. And so do you think that you're going to lead your wife? Up until that moment, everybody's been wrong. So why on earth would you ever take authority over your wife? Why would you ever try to sanctify your wife if everybody else is wrong? In other words, if we're rebellious, no one will exercise authority. Nobody will say yes, God, when God commands them to take on authority. Nobody will preach. They'll share and think out loud. Which is what most preaching is today. It's like, I better not do it. But you know, what is most preaching today? It's like, I wonder... I have a thought. You know, just the other day. Now listen. Why am I doing the body posture? Because the body posture tells you everything you need to know. 
Body posture doesn't lie. Okay? It doesn't lie. Normally, if a man came out of the pulpit and down here, he would be saying, I'm not an authority. You know why I do it? I do it because I'm not willing to have that extra space between me and you. And if I could, I would be right in front of you and you'd feel my saliva. Because I am absolutely convinced, not me, but the word of God is your bread. I'm convinced that what will lead to contentment in your life is if you learn to submit to the preaching of God's word. God's word, not mine. God's. And that then you will be holy. And that holiness is a blessing. And it comes from God, from his word. As you learn to submit to God. And as you learn to submit to God, you will see the whole thing's going to flip. As you learn to submit to God... Then you'll submit to his word. And as you learn to submit to his word, then you will begin to submit to the IRS. Then you will begin to submit to President Barack Obama. Then you will learn to submit to the policeman, to the signs. You will learn to submit to your father and your mother. You will learn to submit to your husband. You will learn to submit to the elders and the pastors and the deacons of the Titus II women. And so I'm down here because I can't get any closer to you. I'm right there. My knees are up against it. And this is as close as I can get to you. Posture matters. And none of us want to be authorities today. You watch. In counseling, we do a lot of counseling. And I remember one day being over at McCree's before they robbed it of its lease and the best restaurant in town for lunch went out of business. And... I was sitting at a table with my wife, and we were counseling a couple. This man, incredibly gifted. Many of you know him. Wonderfully gifted. This man physically had no reason to be afraid of his wife, but boy, they were talking. And every time he opened his mouth, he would look at his wife, who was sitting. She was sitting here, and I was there, and my wife was here. And so every time she's here, and as he would talk, he would say, I have decided that I will, and he's just constantly looking at her. Why? She was, he was scared out of his wits at his wife. Scared out of his wits. And he kept telling us, as we sat there, he kept telling us that he was the one that was making the decisions. And then he'd look at her for approval. And finally, I stopped him and I said, you know, what's going on here has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with your wife and your body language is just telling us that you are in submission to your wife. She's the one that made this decision. Would you please stop lying? Your eyes are giving you away. And then the truth came out. If God is honored... His word will be honored. If God and his word are honored, then the president will be honored. Then your father and mother will be honored. Your husband will be honored. Do you understand? If you do not honor your husband, I defy you to tell me that you honor God. You know how in 1 John it says that the man that says that he loves God but hates his brother is a liar? The man that says that he submits to God and rebels against his pastor 
is a liar. <laughs> and you say, well, yeah, but what about like heretics like Joseph Smith? I say, oh, come on, grow up. <laughs> I'm not talking about Joseph Smith. Well, what about like that guy down in Houston with a big smile? Grow up. I'm not talking about him. I'm talking about if you have a pastor who's a normal failure, all right, and you won't submit to him because he's a normal failure, you don't submit to God because God never called anybody to submit to perfect men. Never. <laughs> Michael is a complete failure. But Jessica has the privilege of having Michael make the mistakes of authority. And that's about the best you can ever say about authority. Authority is all about having the right person make the mistakes. In other words, lower your expectations. Those of you that have grown up in terrible families, lower your expectations. And just expect that it's, you are called by God to submit to failures, to sinful men filled with selfishness, fear, conniving every evil thing that a man can have, that's your husband, and God says, submit to him. What about Sarah calling Abram Lord? The dude that kept passing her off as his sister. Right? Authority is about what? It's about having the right person making the mistakes. That's what authority is about. All right? Now, what is the text of my sermon? <laughs> the text of my sermon is this. Listen. Don't bother turning it on. I'm sorry. Thank you for the work, but turn it off. I want them just to listen. Most of history, people have only listened to the Bible. And there's a difference between listening and following along. So just listen. I'm going to read a section. Uh, just to set the scene, you remember Moses was sort of, in a weird way, he became a crown prince in Egypt. Remember this? And then he was out one day and he saw one of the Hebrews being mistreated by one of the Egyptian slave drivers. And so he dealt with the situation. You remember? He killed the guy. And so he went out a little while later, and he found some Hebrews fighting amongst themselves, and he tried to break up the fight, and what did the Hebrews say to him? He said, you know, are you going to now kill us? You know, bug off, are you going to kill us? And so Moses then ran because he knew that he was likely to be killed by the Egyptians who held the power. He ran into the wilderness, he married Jethro Tall's daughter, that's a joke. He married Jethro's daughter, and he ended up being where every man who doesn't want to bear authority is, and that is he's a forester. He's a farmer. He works alone. All right? He's out in the fields with the sheep, and God appears to him in a burning bush, and God tells him what? God tells him, you are to go down to Egypt... And you are to take on the leadership of my people. I have heard their oppression. I take pity on them, and you are to go and to rescue them. And this is picking up the story. 
with verse 10. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, says God to Moses, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, yes, sir. That's not what Moses said to God. Moses said to God, who am I? He's the perfect postmodern, you know, the perfect emo, you know. Who am I? (laughs) All right. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Such humility. And he said, certainly I will be with you. This is God speaking to Moses. I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. So God's very understanding with him. And God treats him tenderly and says, listen, I'm going to give you a sign. You'll know that I'm behind this. When you come out of Egypt, you'll worship me on this mountain. God's very, very understanding. He remembers our frame that we are made of dust. Then Moses said to God, yes, sir. No, he didn't say that. Moses said to God, behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what's his name, and what shall I say to them? God furthermore said to Moses, no, excuse me, God said to Moses, now there's, it's impossible to, to, to read this in a way that it carries what it would have been there that day. But this is probably the most intense statement in all of Scripture. Then Moses said to God, or God said to Moses, I am who I am. You cannot imagine the intensity of that statement. I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. You People, this whole thing of paying obeisance to the Dalai Lama, it is anathema. There is one God, one. And his name is what? His name is I am. God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Is God lowering himself to us? Does he understand us? Yes, he does. They will pay heed to what you say, and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So now, please, let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. 
But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the neighbor who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus you will plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses said, yes, sir. Then Moses said, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. And so he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. The Lord furthermore said to him, now put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And then he said, put your hand into your bosom again. So he put his hand into his bosom again. And when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. But if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Then Moses said to the Lord, Yes, sir. But that's not what he said. He said, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you've spoken to your servant. In other words, it it hasn't happened right here. For I am slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, and if you've had a good father, you have some idea of what's going on now. The Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, at this point, Moses should say what? But he doesn't. Now then, go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. But he, Moses, said, Please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. This is one of the many places where the NASB doesn't quite get it. That's the translation we use. It would be much better to translate the way the NIV does, which is simply, now, Lord, please send somebody else. (laughs) Is there one husband here that doesn't understand this? Is there one father here that doesn't understand it? One teacher? Is there one mother here that doesn't understand this? One elder, one pastor, one deacon, one Titus II woman? 
please, Lord, send someone else. And then what happens? You know what happens next. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses. You do not ever want the anger of the Lord to burn against you. Now think about it. Moses was just humble, just evolved. He, he knew the limitations of authority. He knew that if, if, if a man was a servant leader, it would never get to this point. You know? He knew that he would likely be killed. He knew that likely the Jews would end up saying to him, the Hebrews, they'd end up saying to him what? Do you remember what they said? You have made us a stench in the eyes of Pharaoh. I love that. Not ears. You've made us stink in the eyes. Remember, they hated what he did because what? They took away their strong. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses, and he said, Is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently. Now, people, we have to understand how God says this. Okay, fine. It's not enough that I'm the one that made you dumb, slow of speech, lacking in eloquence. Fine, fine. Aaron, he speaks well. I know that he speaks fluently, and moreover, behold, he's coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Did you notice it said the anger of the Lord burned? So however you want to read that, don't read it namby-pamby. Because it was intense. God was angry at Moses when he said those words. You are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth. And I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. You shall take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. And then Moses said what? Do you know something? It doesn't tell us what Moses said. The next words are, then Moses departed. In other words, God took away any choice. It was done. God had spoken. Now, what was left? What was left was nothing but a life of suffering for Moses. Moses had an unbelievably rebellious people. And Moses loved them, and Moses died for them constantly. At one point, God was going to consume them in his wrath. And you remember that Moses and Paul are the two people who have done this. Do you remember that Moses said, no, Lord, instead of consuming them, consume me. Remember Paul saying that? If I could, I would, I, would, I would be cast away if I could save my people. Moses became a father. Who had been Moses' father? He'd been fatherless. He lived probably in a, uh, what do they call that thing that my wife said not to preach on today? A harem, yeah. My wife said, don't preach on a harem on Father's Day. <laughs> That's what she said to me yesterday. So Moses was probably raised in a harem. Fatherless. You say, well, I can't be an authority because I've never seen a father. Oh, yes, you can. Moses could. You say, well, I'm a sinner. I say, who makes sinners? God made you. God was the one that decreed that you would be born with original sin. You say, well, I'm slow of speech. God says, who makes the tongue that is mute? 
you say, well, my wife's a rebel. I say, do you think God didn't know that? That's why God commands her over and over again, submit to your husband. Generally, you don't have to say to submit. You don't have to command to submit to people that are submissive. Or not so much. In other words, people, we have all kinds of reasons why we don't want to be fathers. All right? And the fact is, God has put you in positions of authority. You examine people's eyes, you tell them what to do. Do you understand? And so today is what? Father's Day. Here's an idea. Let's be fathers. <laughs> you know, like, let's, you know, like, have children. Here's an idea. Let's take on responsibility at a very time when no one in the world wants to take on responsibility. Here's an idea. Let's say yes, sir. Here's an idea. Let's not abdicate and act as if we're principled in it. <laughs> okay, okay, I'm done. And if you feel completely incapable, think of Moses. And what did Moses get? Moses got the power of God. That's all. There's never been a man who has been born who has not felt completely inadequate to lead his wife. <laughs> it scares men out of their wits to be a husband. Every man, even Stephen leading Zebra. That's Zebra. Let's pray.